good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Although I'm tempted just to close in prayer and go home after Justin's prayer. Appreciate that, brother, minister to me. I know to the rest. But we are going to continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And we arrive this morning at one of its most familiar passages. Salt and light. Two words that describe the witness and role of God's people in the world. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, there, there's a common phrase you've all heard before. Um, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that? Right? It means kind of a long experience with something or someone can make you so aware of their flaws that you can't, like, you become scornful. You cannot get them out of your mind. And I don't think that's the way Christians view fam uh, familiar passages in the Bible. But I want to take that phrase and just alter it to what I think can be just as true and dangerous. Familiarity breeds boredom. A passage in the Bible that maybe you have heard so many times, you've heard it quoted, you've heard it referenced, you've heard it preached, you've heard it taught, you've heard, seen it written about and posted, and you can tend to just start to gloss over it where these passages and these words and these phrases don't mean anything to us anymore. Now, I realize that some of you are new to Grace Church. Maybe you've begun watching since the pandemic, or you've begun attending, and you're new to the Bible. And maybe this is the first time you will hear a passage preached on the church being salt and light. And if that's true, I think you're at an advantage this morning. But for most of us, I'm guessing, the passage on salt and light, it's not new. And so I challenge you in hearing the way I challenged myself in preparing Church, let's come with fresh eyes this morning. Pastor Joe finished the Beatitudes last week in Matthew 5. It's kind of Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, if you will. And if you look down at your Bible, there is probably a break between verses 12 and 13. You probably have a little heading in your Bible, like mine, that says something like salt and light. And we're tempted to think that now this next section is disconnected from everything we just heard and read about that was preached last week by Pastor Joe, uh, but we know that verses, numbers, and subdivisions in your Bible are helpful to the reader, but they were placed in much later after the authors wrote it, right? And, and so it can be misleading in understanding Matthew's flow of thought and writing. So I want to begin by actually reading the verses that we ended with last week, and you can follow along in your Bible or on the screen, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then you are the salt of the earth. So point being that the context of these verses on salt and light are directly connected to and flowing from Jesus saying, you will be persecuted. And falsely accused on my account. And throughout church history, persecution has not just been a threat to the church, but in God's providence, it has been the fuel of church growth. Joe shared a quote last week that put it best. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It reminded me of the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Um, Latimer and Ridley were bishops in England in the middle of the 16th century, the time of the Reformation as it was sweeping across Europe. 
And in England, there was this tug of war between uh, the reigns of kings and queens who were either for the Reformation and Protestant doctrine or opposed it. And so it became this kind of seesaw of being accepted and exiled and it becoming legal or illegal to preach the gospel based upon who was ruling the nation. And after King Edward VI died, a king who had embraced the changes of the Reformation, his half-sister Mary took the throne. And she was adamantly against the Reformation. And she went on a violent streak which is why history remembers her as Bloody Mary. Well, Ridley and Latimer were arrested, and they were kept in a tower cell for 18 months before it was their turn to be put to death. And they were tied to the same wooden stake, back to back, and burned. And onlookers recorded their final words. First, Ridley said to Latimer, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And then Latimer said to Ridley, listen closely, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Salt and light. By God's grace, we've seen it all across church history. And it's not just historic, but it is global in our modern day, where there are many brothers and sisters across the world who are facing the same kinds of persecution. You could just go ahead and Google Ethiopian Christians in Africa to see what has just happened to them over the last several months. I actually can't even share the details because it would be inappropriate for people listening. But hundreds of Christians being mowed down. And I say that to say this, if I'm not careful, I can suffer from what, like this guilt complex of how easy we have it here. How comfortable it is for us to come and to watch or to turn on the screen and watch. That we don't face that kind of persecution and we should not try and drum up a persecution complex where it doesn't exist at those levels. So let's not lament the fact that we have great freedom to worship and gather and proclaim the name of Christ in this country. But church, let's not waste it either. The call on us is the same as it always has been and always will be for God's people no matter where we are or when we are doing it. It is to be salty and bright. And in all the chaos, even in our nation right now, the truth remains. So here's what I know, here's what I want to say about the church in our country right now. Um, some of you at Grace are relieved with a new administration compared to last week. Others of you are nervous and anxious about a new administration compared to what you were last week. And honestly, others, maybe even most, were a mixed bag, man. We're relieved about some things, about a new administration. And we're nervous and anxious maybe about other things. And, and so here's kind of my, um, my, my hope for everybody at Grace Church today. That rather than focus first on our distinctions between believers, uh, maybe even believers in the same church that you might not align with politically. Not saying you should never discuss those things. But rather than first focus on distinctions, let us always first and foremost, as Justin prayed, focus on the similarities of who we are as a church. 
of what is most true about us. And to do that, I have to share a tweet by Beth Moore. Hang with me here, all right? Beth Moore, some of you might know the name. She is probably most traditionally associated um, with women's Bible studies and women's books. Um, But I believe she has easily become one of the most prophetic voices for our church in the modern age. And I want to share a tweet that she shared on Inauguration Day this past Wednesday because she managed in a single tweet to include both our vision statement at Grace and our sermon passage for today. And I don't know whether to be excited or freaked out about that, but I want to share it. It'll be on the screen. She wrote this. Let this preach to you. She said, rulers of nations have come and gone for 2,000 years, but the church remains. We did not know all that would befall us four years ago, nor do we know the times ahead. But the task of the church remains unchanged, to know Christ and make him known, to be salt and light in this time and place. The church remains. And so, Grace, I think any week would have been a good week for us to talk about salt and light, but especially this week. So fresh eyes. Follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's the plan. With familiar passages, I especially want to fight to be simple and clear. There's a temptation as a preacher to get creative and complex, but I want to fight to be simple and clear in that we're going to see four things in this passage. The world in decay, second, the church is salt, then the world in darkness, and lastly, the church as light. So number one, the world in decay. These verses explicitly speak to and to seek to describe the people of God, but in doing so, it also implicitly describes the world. The reason Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, is because of the reality That the world is in decay. The world was created good, but due to sin, it is not inherently good. When I say world, I'm referring to the context that John spoke about in 1 John 3 that we saw in the fall, if you remember, when he said, do not love the world. The use of world in that context means the evil, fallen creation, and these systems under the authority of Satan That are opposed to God. Now, by God's common grace, are there good things about the world? From from the natural to the moral? Absolutely. But the world is not inherently good. What do I mean by that? It means that you could wake up and see a beautiful sunrise. You could take a trip to any of our national parks in our country, like the Grand Canyon, and just witness stunning natural beauty. But all the while, natural evil exists and persists. A couple months ago, on November 3rd, Hurricane Ada um, claimed 150 lives in Central America. 
Last spring, Australian brush, brush fires claimed 478 lives. And we know an invisible virus has claimed 2 million lives worldwide, 400,000 of which in our own country and counting. This is a fallen world with natural evil. Now, we need to keep all these things clear that we know we don't live in this dualistic universe where God is kind of competing with the enemy and it's kind of a punch and it's a counterpunch. We know that God is sovereign over all things, including evil, while not being the author of evil. But it's not just natural evil that sees this world in decay, but, but moral evil. That mankind, men and women, are the only aspect of creation that the Bible says was made in God's image, in his likeness. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the image of God was tarnished but not erased. And so we are all born with a sin nature. All people are image bearers but born with a sin nature. So what does that mean? It means... Again, by God's common grace, people are capable of doing good things. Truly capable of doing good outwardly things, but they are fallen and then do not naturally live and do those things to the glory of God. But rather for the glory of something else. And fallen people create, operate, and instate fallen institutional systems that often abuse fellow image bearers. So sin is never just individualized, it is systemic. And that should not be overly controversial because behind every system are people. And if people are fallen, then the systems that they put in place are often fallen. The global pandemic that is even worse than an invisible virus is the pandemic across human history where people have dehumanized other humans. And honestly, we could go all across history, but we don't even have to. There are plenty of examples right now of humans dehumanizing other humans at scales that is horrifying. Think about the Uyghur people in Western China and what's happening with them. A Muslim people that are being systematically sinned against in genocide type numbers. I've referenced what's happening in Ethiopia right now. We think about nations like North Korea. We think about places like the United States where we still see systemic evil that marginalizes certain people groups and the fact that this past week, many of our nations celebrated the court case Roe v. Wade that has claimed 62 million unborn babies killed in the womb since its passing. These are not the exceptions of human history. It's the rule. And just as meat that goes rotten cannot make itself fresh again, so a fallen world in decay that is rotten because of sin is unable to heal itself. And at the root of it all, the world is in decay because of the rebellion against God that leads to abuse against fellow man. So number two, speaking into this, we see the church as salt. When Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, the word for you in Greek is a word that we do not have a one-for-one -one equivalent for in English. 
It's an emphatic you, meaning this, that the literal translation would be you and only you are the salt of the earth. God's plan for preserving and pushing back against moral decay in the church, moral decay in the world, is the church. You and only you. There's a scene in the movie Armageddon, 1998 film starring Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. I'm sure many of you have seen it, if not at least have heard of it, where these guys lead a team into space to keep an asteroid from destroying the world. And at one point in the movie, NASA approaches the character played by Bruce Willis named Harry and said that his ragtag oil drilling team of misfits were going to be the ones who were sent into space. And Harry asks the NASA director, what's the contingency plan? And the director says, contingency plan? Yeah, you know, the backup plan. You must have some sort of backup plan, right? No, we don't have a backup plan. You're it. And Harry says, you're telling me that these eight Boy Scouts right here, that is the world's hope. And the director just says, yeah. Jesus is telling his disciples, you're it. No backup plan. The church, you and only you, are the salt of the earth. And yet we know that Jesus can tell them that because that they will be an extension of him. He is the head. They are the body. Certainly the disciples hearing this in the moment did not understand this in its totality. But Jesus knows that one day they will be filled with the Spirit. And he's not saying, hey, that you can be the salt of the earth if you want to be. Or that you should be the salt of the earth. But in me, you are the salt of the earth. God's people. The church is the salt. So let's chat about salt. Many of you know this, but when we think of salt, we think, hey, please pass the salt. And we sprinkle it on our food to make it taste better. We think of salt as seasoning. And while that may have been true in the ancient world, it looks like it really was not used in that context at all. But salt was much more commonly known as a preservative. They did not have refrigeration systems in the ancient Middle East. So they relied on salt to preserve food from going rotten, particularly meat. The sodium from salt draws the bacteria causing moisture out of the meat, drying it out, making it possible for it to be stored for extended period of time without going bad. So my wife, Rochelle, um, her family lives out in Wisconsin, and her um, family um, on their property have about 8 to 10 Scottish Highlander cows. You can Google them. They're these huge, massive beef cows, furry, long horns, terrifying, and, um, and they butcher one cow a year. So we, when our family goes out every summer, we love watching the cows, and I always have that moment like, one of you won't be here next year. Which one of you? But um, Rochelle's dad, this past week, told her, all excited, that they butchered a cow that produced 2,000 pounds of meat. 
And if you were to go to their house, you would see their basement, unfinished basement, lined with freezers all around, filled with, among other things, meat. And they can't give it away fast enough. But giving it to family members, we go out, we fill up coolers, we bring it back with us. Her mom flies out um, with a suitcase of meat whenever she comes, right? Like, think about that, just going through, like, the TSA line, like, looking at her, nice lady, there's meat, right, filled with freezer. Because freezers keep meat from going bad. Well, in the ancient world, it was salt that preserved meat from going bad. So this is the word picture Jesus gives to his disciples and throughout Matthew's gospel and then to the church for the last 2,000 years. The people of God are called to act as a preservative against decay in the world. So I hope you're asking, how? I understand that's what Jesus is saying, but how can it happen? Well, for starters... That's what the rest of the Sermon of the Mount is largely about, all right? So we're going to get it in the weeks and months ahead. Stay tuned. In its totality, it's going to teach us how to be salt. But for this morning, in short, let me repeat Joe's phrase from last week. Don't be of the world, but still be in the world. Salt cannot preserve meat that it's not touching, and likewise, the church cannot preserve a world that, is, that it is not interacting with. Isolation from the world is never the answer for the church. But similarly, salt cannot preserve meat when it lost its taste. That's what Jesus said, when it, when it loses its saltiness. And likewise, the church cannot preserve a world when it looks like the world. In the world, not of the world, interacting with, but not conforming to. Church, we will only be faithful to our call to be salty in as much as we live for the glory of God and out of that love and affection for God to truly love our neighbor and to think hard and to do the work as to what that looks like for us. If you try and love God and yet forsake your neighbor, you're not salty. And if you try and love your neighbor but forsake God, not salty. But we will see, Lord willing, week after week in this series, what Jesus means by salty. So let's see it through. Church, again, let's do the work where it's through our love for God that we will play a part in preserving a world in decay on behalf of our neighbor. Let's keep going. Number three, the world in darkness. Again, the reason Jesus will explicitly say you are the light of the world is because of the implicit truth that the world is in darkness. All throughout the Bible, darkness is associated with lostness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, this brings us back to Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered the world, fractured the created order that led to natural evil and moral evil, which we've seen. But even more significantly, sin has created a divide between creator and creation, leading to spiritual darkness. 
So the reality is that the world is shrouded in darkness. And the tragedy is that the world loves it. I loved it before Christ opened my eyes. You loved the darkness before God entered in. John writes in John 3, 19, the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is the simple, essential truth that the church proclaims about the world and I think is the claim that makes the world hate the church the most. Our claim is that they're lost. That without Christ, there's no life. There's no salvation. There's no eternity in heaven. Without Christ, it's, it's darkness. Lostness. Without repentance and faith, it is eternal suffering and separation from God. That's our claim. And so it's no wonder that the world hates that claim. You would hate it too. And you probably did hate it before God rescued you. So let us not confuse good works, a phrase which we'll come back to in a bit, with good people. Again, people are capable, by God's common grace, of doing good works that we should affirm wherever we see it in believers and unbelievers alike. It's not wrong for a believer to affirm an action of an unbeliever or affirm an action of an institution that is not of God, but that does something that is aligned with God, even if that was not their motivation for it. Let's affirm it where we should affirm. But the capability of good works does not equate to good people. Because in that sense, then they are not in need of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And we know that all people very much are. So if you want to ask me, what's the most hateful thing a believer can do in this world? It is to not care about the fact that people are lost in darkness. And I, I include myself here, that we often try to inoculate ourselves from that truth... And we'll use phrases like, well, we can't judge the heart. We don't know about their heart. It's more about their actions. And, and that's true. We cannot judge the heart, nor are we called to judge the heart, especially of those in the world. But if they themselves are saying they don't need Jesus Christ for salvation, or they don't need Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, then we should believe that's what they believe. And we should mourn over it and pray over it. And where God allows us to speak into it. Listen, there are certainly unloving ways that we can interact with the world that is lost in darkness. And we should repent of the times that we are unloving towards the world. But it is not unloving in and of itself to claim that the world is lost in darkness. It would be unloving to deny that. Which leads to the last point. The church as light. Again, it's an emphatic you in the Greek. When you read this, always think about this in your mind. From here until glory, when Jesus says this, he says, you and only you are the light of the world. Which is an amazing statement in its own right, but I think it's even more incredible than Jesus saying that you are the salt of the earth because 
The light of the world is a phrase Jesus uses for himself. We heard it in our kids' video this morning that Jesus said to the men, I am the light of the world. We see it elsewhere in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I learned something new this week in studying this passage. I learned that Jesus said that in John chapter 8 because it was the morning after an annual ceremony in Jerusalem called the Illumination of the Temple. Have you heard about this? That on this night every year in the temple treasury, there were four massive golden candelabra that were topped with big torches. And these were as high as the highest walls in the temple. And each bowl of the torches held 65 liters of oil. And when darkness fell over Jerusalem, the young priests, who were the most fit, I guess, would climb ladders, go to the top of each of these torches, and light the oil, which would illuminate essentially all of Jerusalem. And this annual celebration would be in remembrance of the pillar of fire, a glorious cloud of flame that led people through the wilderness after they were freed from Egypt on their way to the promised land. And it was the morning after. So picture this in your mind. The bowls are still charred and maybe smoking. And Jesus applies this image that they all saw last night to himself. I am the light. I am the one that hearts are drawn to. I'm the greater and better temple. I will make the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I will give myself up for the sins of the world and lead them from slavery to the promised land. And here in Matthew 5, incredibly, he now applies it to his disciples. You are the light of the world. How could he possibly say that? He can say it because he is who he said he is. He did what he said he would do. And so when we talk about salvation, we talk about a repenting of sin and our love for darkness and placing our faith in Jesus Christ, who is the light of life, we are united with him. This is a word we should use more often in the church, our union with Christ. When we say, I'm saved, or I'm a believer, you are proclaiming that you are in Christ, you are united with him, and he, incredibly, is in you. By the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And likewise, the Bible says that Christ is in us. Christ is in the church, his body. That, that we don't become Christ, but we are in Christ. And therefore, due to that union, we are light as he is light. This is how Jesus can say this. Not that you will be light, or that you might be a kind of light, but that you are the light of the world, because you are in him. The world talks a lot about the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment that took, overtook a couple hundred years in our history that has shaped us as a culture far more than we probably would ever realize. But the Enlightenment of man focuses on self. Think about even that word, enlightenment, to be enlightened. God's enlightenment focuses on the light of Jesus Christ. 
Donald Barnhouse. He was a 20th century preacher at the famous 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He would explain this passage this way. I thought it was compelling. That when the sun sets, the moon comes up. And the moon shines, but not with its own light. It shines with a reflected light. And so the church is like the moon. It shines with real light, but that is not light that originates from us. And just like the moon, the church really can light the path, but only in as much as that it is reflecting the light from the source. So again, now every time you look at the night sky and you see the light of the moon, aside from giving glory to God as the creator of all things, let it be a reminder that every time you look at the moon is your reminder that Jesus has told you that you are the light of the world because you are in Christ. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world, so what? What's that mean? He says, shine bright. Remember the one-line description of the Sermon on the Mount? Be who you are in Christ and live accordingly. These verses give the clearest affirmation of that. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, so shine. Again, how? Here's the most important part. Give me a couple more minutes. The title of the sermon that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. Not just that they may hear about your good works or assume that you probably do good works or even think about good works you may or may not do, but that they may see them. You see how incredible the sovereign saving work of God is. We say all the time that we are not saved by our good works. We are saved by faith alone that leads to good works. But listen to this. Jesus is saying others will come to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ by our good works. Do you catch that? We are not saved by good works, but Jesus will use our good works to draw other people to salvation in him. So the glory of God is our utmost motivation to do good works. But it's not the only motivation. Because if Jesus is saying your good works can be a conduit through which he uses to save other people's souls. Church, do we need anything else? Do we need anything else for motivation? Where every day we can wake up with a purpose to glorify God. That no Christian lives a boring life. No Christian has a boring day. There are no boring days in the kingdom of God. Every day is a new opportunity to trust him wherever he has you. To worship him and to do good works. In small ways. In big ways. But all in his way. And not to be performative, but to do it publicly so that through you and through us, a world may be drawn to the real thing. Christ reveals himself to people in darkness through the light of his church. Let me leave you with a few questions to ponder. Church, is your neighborhood or apartment complex better off because you live in it? 
Is your school better off because you attend it? Is your team better off because you play on it? Is the foster care system in New Jersey better off because Grace Church exists within it? Church, there are no meaningless days in the kingdom of God. So let us stand firm in Christ, no matter the cost. Sometimes, as Joe preached last week, the world will hate us for it. And other times, the world will be drawn to us by it. And that is totally up to the sovereignty of God. We cannot control the results of our faithfulness. But we can, by God's grace, choose faithfulness and trust him with the results. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would believe what we hear from you. And that today we believe we can be a light, that we are a light, that we are a city on a hill. And so I pray, Father, that we would shine bright, knowing that you have placed all of us in the year 2021, in this time, in this place, and that we would just be faithful, Lord, and we would keep that candle burning, the same candle that Latimer and Ridley burned in England in 1555. This is the light that we will keep burning no matter the cost, no matter where it brings, Lord. But we pray that we'd be faithful. We pray that you would use it to draw a world to us, not to make much of us, but to glorify your name. And we trust, Lord, that we are part of a story and we are part of a lighting of a candle that will never be put out. Father, fill us with that truth now as we prepare to sing and finish with partaking in the Lord's Supper. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand as we prepare to sing.